you want to be a talent magnet, there could be moments where the magnetism is still there, but it's at different distances, right? So someone wanting to come and be a boomerang for you in a year or two years, that's okay, right? But because the tether is still there. There's still something attractive and appealing about what you've been doing. And that's an investment commitment. As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sipple Jr. Welcome to this week's episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. I get the distinct pleasure to be with a dear friend, John Baldino the CEO and founder of Humoriso. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mike, for having me. Appreciate it. So, John, you and I have met through the legendary discussions through the HR world, through the HR Social Hour, I believe is when I first got introduced to you. We have many mutual friends that are authors, that are coaches, that are advisors, that are business owners, like the two of us. And I really want to spend time today, one, to say thank you for joining the episode. Thank you for holding me accountable each time we talk, asking about faith journey, asking about work journey, and what life has brought us over the last few years. John, what have you learned about yourself over the last 18 to 20 months um, that surprised you or that put a magnifying glass on? I don't think much. There's not really been much that's gone on. So I, you know, I don't. <laughs> it's been. <laughs> It's been obviously quite quite a year and a half, almost two years, right? In terms of socially, of course, with COVID and all that went on with the political sphere, the governmental sphere, right? How much government is allowed, how much regulation is comfortable. It's interesting because all of that really kind of came to a head where the business community was already struggling in some, particularly in some cities around how much is too much, how much is not enough. And then we had this horrific pandemic to come up alongside of it to say, now we've got another vein of rule, regulation, consideration, study, truth. Truth, I think, is really where a lot of people started to be hit in the face differently, right? So what has it done for me? I think I've been a bit more observant over the last year and a half. And I don't want that to sound like I I never observed before, but I think that the, the manner with which you had to take your time, it's so easy to go on Facebook and spout, right? It's so easy to go on Twitter and make a declaration. And what I mean by that is it's distant, it's separate. Even if you had trolls of whatever variety kind of chiming into what you've said, it's still, I'm not looking at someone saying these things. I'm not looking at someone and and connecting and then trying to sort of espouse a, a perspective. It doesn't mean that I s- still couldn't have one. It doesn't mean that there still isn't truth. But I think that on the business side of things, the ultimate goal in business very often is not truth. It's profitability, it's growth, 
its health, however that is defined, its success, again, however that's defined. But when you have people sort of contending with what's really going on, it was really an interesting place for business owners, for C-suite executives to be because they were looked at for their, and for some people, I think they would say it was moral direction. What will you choose in this time? And that's really different. Obviously, it's pressure-filled for the C-suite, for a business owner who's like, I'm just trying to make widgets. What is... <laughs> but then they're looked at, their people are looking at them saying, what do you think? What will you do? How will you respond? What should we do? How will you treat us? Those things are, I mean, they're huge questions. And I think I'm not exempt from them, right? I had fantastic discussions with my own team, with my staff who come from varied backgrounds, conservative to liberal, whatever party affiliation you want to put in there, faith backgrounds you want to put in there, family backgrounds you want to put in there. I mean, it runs the gamut. Age, race, ethnicity, heritage, just all kinds of perspectives. And when you're bringing all that together in a global perspective, and this was a global perspective because we were all dealing with it, it was some of the most robust, even uncomfortable, but robust nonetheless conversations. Yeah, and what you just referenced, I love that we all come with background. We all come with experience. And we all come with our own stories and dynamics that we're working through personally and as a family and as a community. And we as managers, as leaders of others, have to take all of that into consideration with everything that has gone on. So, you know, the comment that you made earlier, John, around taking pause and listening, really trying to understand all of those dynamics and putting it through a filter of not just our own, but a filter for how are others experiencing it? What does this feel like, look like, and experience like to be in their shoes? And for some business owners, I tend to be a little empathetically wired. We'll think about some of those things differently. But I think for some business owners, it was the first time they were really ever challenged to think that way or to care that way. And that's very different, uncomfortable. I mean, some were very uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think that they still are, right? And not everyone has made that switch. I mean, I just recently, I've, you know, lots of companies are beginning to make, some are still showing that they don't quite know what to do and what's happening and they're trying to figure it out. Others are trying to make early declarations and sometimes it's a little too early to make declaration, right? Well, planning is so hard, right? We talked about this. Planning is tough right now. There's a lot of grace and compassion that has to be sort of mixed into all of this. We don't know. We didn't know that this variant was going to occur and be as robust as it is at the moment and what's happening with that. And, and, you know, it's tough to just sit around and say, well, let's see what happens. Well, let's see what happens. You know, at some point, somebody's going to make a decision to say, okay, let's try this. Let's see if we can do this. And, And I think as people, we've got to be gracious. Like we just need to give people a break. It's not meant to be accusatory. 
We don't need to run online and tell everybody how horrible they are for even considering to make a certain decision. Like, we don't know. And with running a business and being involved in business, risk comes with the territory. Risk comes with the territory. It doesn't mean that you're foolish, but it also doesn't mean that you can just sit by and wait and wait and wait. You have to make a decision sometimes. So speaking to, let's say, supervisors, managers, directors that, you know, again, all of us, we would say that even CEOs don't have not experienced this and don't have the answers. Right. When you're in the middle of the organization, the heartbeat, and you're trying to, you've got the most direct reports and the most kind of span of responsibility in terms of people, and you're trying to set those directions, what advice would you continue to give? to those seeking how to deliver the message in the right way and how to be engaged with their team to know all of those experiences that we have to almost leaderships become very individualized, right? It's a one-to-one sport, not a one-to-many in making declarations. I think a few things. One, I think that the if you sit in that sort of spot where you have such a large span of control and influence, start with small. Start small, take your management level, director level, and sit and discuss with them first. Share what you're thinking, share why you're thinking it, share where it's coming from. Listen then for responses, because often that next level is going to say, well, you may hear this. Well, we should be ready for that. They're going to see some things that maybe you haven't thought about. And that's okay. Like That's why you have that level then they're also then going to be one over to you, W-O-N, right? One over to you to say, okay, what's our communication plan? How are we moving this forward? What's next? Now we tell the next level and then we tell the next level. Some business owners through the last year and a half in particular have gotten into trouble because they've decided to make their first release of perspective to the press, right? Or online. And so everyone is sort of like, what? There's little context. There's even worse, maybe, assumed context that is at play. And people will fill in the blanks. Make no bones about it. (laughs) People will fill in the blanks with what they think is happening. And so if you are that sitting in that spot, I would say to you, take, while I appreciate risk and I'm all about it. I mean, entrepreneurially speaking, I get that. But the take a moment to make sure that it's calculated risk. You have to weigh it out, bring those in that can help you sort of think through it, and then develop a real communication plan. And this is a time where I would say you should lean on, if you're a company, as we're talking about of a certain size, you need to pull your marketing team in and let them do what it is that they do and push them to do what it is that they need to do if they've never been pushed at this level, right? This is about verbiage and context, right? And considering all angles, that should be something they they do for you and do it well. And John, as we think about, you know, kind of the employee life cycle and aspects that have changed. So we're talking about organizations, everybody seems to be struggling to find great team members. Looking back three years ago, people complained about it then too, right? So but I understand that there are certain talent shortages in certain pockets. Are there, let's walk through this employee journey. 
what are you experiencing and providing guidance on regarding kind of this pre-employment, how to attract talent into a company, and then how to successfully onboard in a time like this? Yeah, I mean, that is... It's a really good question, right? And so people may hear what I'm going to share and some will jump up and down and in support. And some may say he's lost his mind after all these years. <laughs> I think a few things, right? So first, contextually, in terms of what's going on, compensation is a huge factor at the moment because talent is, you know, as you said, right, there's a shortage of talent. And so you've got companies that will do what the easiest knee-jerk response is to do, which is pay them more. You need people, up the ante, and they'll come to where you are. That's not the best strategy for a couple of reasons. One, just because you're paying more doesn't mean that the talent that's coming in is still the right talent. They're just the ones that got to the opening first and decided to say yes to the more money. Number two, I don't know that the market is it's going to be sustainable. And I've heard from a few people and had this similar discussions. We're, we're kind of looking at it like the housing market in 07, 08, where there was just these, this incredible you know, amplification of home value and then everything crashed because it just was untenable in the real estate market to keep selling homes for you know, a year after you bought it for, you know, 30% more than what you purchased it for, 40% more. That's, it's just not reasonable. And so right now, there's many ways in which I see that happening in the market right now. Roles that a year or two years ago are now being offered at 40% over that value. So much so that even the compensation surveys can't keep up, you know, blessings to Mercer and pay scale and the and all those that you know lean on eri that lean on all this data they're doing their best to keep up but it's moving at such a pace that the reporting structure is it's a struggle to keep up with what's happening so so that's a little bit in terms of context so how do you handle it i think you're smart about the way in which you compensate people don't ignore the fact that compensation matters just be wise about doing it so you're seeing more of sign-on bonus or incentive-based additions that may be brand new so that you're not bound into sort of a base compensation for life, should there be, and as I believe there will be, but should there be a market correction, right, for compensation? I think you got to be wise in that. If you've never done comp analytics in your organization, I might say it's time. I might say it's time. The other thing I would say in that employee potential employee life cycle right at that at the beginning of it, right? The potential to find the right candidates. I still think that there's room to think a bit more critically about what the roles are and what they actually need to do. That silverish file cabinet that you still have with the job descriptions sort of in a folder in the back of one of the drawers. When's the last time you really, really looked at that thing instead of just pulling it out when you have to post a job? Like that's, that's worth looking at. It's worth, from a team dynamic standpoint, going to the team for which the role reports or is involved in and say, when you look at this, is this person doing this? You will have people say, they don't do half of that. Where did you find this? <laughs> it's like, oh, well, that probably explains why we're having a hard time keeping, finding and then keeping these people. That also explains why performance management stinks in our organization because we're measuring against what? We don't have the right litmus. There's all of these constructs that 
people will say to me, oh, John, we're good. Oh, John, we're good. Oh, John, we're good. And I'm like, yeah, but people are running out your front door, running out your front door. They're not even trying to be sneaky about it in the back door. They're running out your front door. How is it that you don't see the disconnect? Well, they just, it's because of unemployment. People just want to stay on unemployment and they don't really want to work. Really? Is that all of it? Is that everything, every person who's left, they just want to leave because they, so they can get on unemployment and get extra government money. That's everybody who left. That's the reason why. Come on. We know that all, always, never kind of language is tough. You can't defend that. Be thoughtful about, about what it is that the role actually is in a deeper way. And are you seeing organizations also challenge themselves relating to the requirements section of job descriptions and <laughs> really thinking, is that really what makes someone most successful in this role and responsibility? Yeah, you asked a good question, right? You, we say it in such a positive way, right? I think that there are some organizations that are doing that. I think that there are some organizations being forced against their will to do that. And that's okay too. Sometimes it just takes that. Look, this fall will be 30 years for me in HR, leadership development, organizational contract, like all of these disciplines under this umbrella of human resources, right? And for these decades, right, you have the same conversations with people around some of this, like, does this really, really matter? I just spoke with a business owner about this and he was blown away. And I said, your problem is that you don't know the audience to whom you're delivering these things. You have never thought about it. You just post and pray. And the problem with this is if there's a list of 10, 10 qualifications for a particular role, you must have blah, 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 right? 10 bullet points. Let's just make it easy numbers. And classically, a guy, and I'm, when I say a guy, I mean just identify as male. I'm not talking race. There's, there's nuanced differences here, but I'm going to say in general, male, if they hit two out of the 10 bullet points, they'll hit apply to the job. Two out of 10. If you identify as female, again, across race, ethnicity, just female, seven out of 10 before you hit apply. Now I'll be narrow for the sake of just comparison. If you come from a military background, service to our country, background. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. So who's applying for your job? Do you want to know why you're struggling in your, perhaps some of your inclusion and equity objectives? Well, because the requirements that you put there, you have done very little homework to know, is it required? Is it preferred? If it's preferred, why is it preferred? I love looking at departments and I'll say to someone, here's the job description you've given me to do some recruiting work, right, for our team to do some recruiting work. And there's five people currently in the role. Two of those people would not meet this job description. Should we fire them first so that I'm doing three openings as opposed to just the one? No, 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 they're great. Well, how can they be great? They don't have a bachelor's degree. How can they be great? They didn't have seven years of experience before they started doing that work. How can they be great? They didn't have, you know, master level Excel experience. How can they be great? That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, we knew them. Oh, well, so what does it have to do with? It doesn't have to do with the qualifications. It has to do with your comfort. How do you want me to measure comfort? Have you found, John, that people are more open to this discussion? You know, we're all being encouraged in our spaces that we're in to be applying some pressure here and 
challenging and asking questions and being thoughtful. And, you know, I don't know why the construct of this has always been the case, but technically we've always been exclusive, not inclusive in the way we've prepared our marketing of roles and our job description and key criteria. Yeah. I would say, yes, they're more open. Now it may be forced openness because of the struggle to find talent. It may be that there's just a practicality to it that some business owners are now willing to have a conversation. I need help. I can't, I'm not finding the right people. Well, uh, I may have shared this either with you or with some other folks as well. You know, we did a, a, our organization is, is in our recruiting work. And from an inclusion and equity standpoint, we're recognized for that. We're certified in that. And so just because we have a um, commitment to the way in which we recruit for all roles, and we only do direct hire recruiting. It's not temp or any of that stuff, which is fine, but we don't do that. And we have that perspective. And so I'm working with an organization. This is during the pandemic. And they're a large enterprise organization, tens of thousands of employees, primarily up and down the East Coast. And they wanted to make some inroads. They have great diversity numbers. Their EEO1 form looks fantastic. It doesn't look fantastic in every level, but overall, it looks fantastic, right? And so they wanted to make some inroads at the upper end, director and above, for representation for different people groups so that they had a different way of thinking about how they're approaching the market. And they, just to your point, right, one of their criteria on one of the senior roles was 15 years of certain kind of experience, 15 years of a certain kind of experience. And so my question when we first started was, were you hiring black women to do this role 15 years ago? They like looked at each other on Zoom, right? Like, no. I'm like, well, if you weren't as large as you are, where do you think we're going to find that person who has 15 years of experience, who comes from a visibly diverse, as you desire, background? Even non-visible, socioeconomic, educational, where do you think they're coming from? If you weren't giving them a break as large as you were 15 years ago, where are they getting that experience from? You're right, John, you're right. Change it to 12 to 15 years. Great. Okay. What's, may I ask a question? What's the difference between 10 years of experience and 12 years of experience? Palpably point to the differences between 10 and 12. <laughs> Everybody's kind of looking at each other. Because they don't know what to say, right? And so we use these numbers, we pull them out of the air. Like, what is it that you really get to the skill set? There are lots of people, you and I, Mike, have worked with people, unfortunately, through the years who have been in a spot that they've been in for a number of years. And just the number of years does not equate to expertise or a defined skill set, right? Just because they sit some, if I sat in a garage for three years, it does not make me a car. I don't understand why people think just sitting somewhere makes you something. It's got to be something more measurable, more robust, and a layer or two deeper than what we're actually putting as the qualification. Yeah, we tell people often, as you just referenced, that if you take this job description, who on your team would qualify and would you qualify, right? Right. Depending on who the hiring manager is. As we all know, it's much more about experience, skills, and desire. Forget certain requirements and hurdles and barriers that you're just making people jump over. Right. Just because they, as you just referenced, have a years of experience doesn't mean they can actually do the job. Right. And vice versa. I remember 
many years ago, hiring a sales team for an organization and they went through some assessments and well, this person doesn't have closing skills, you know, and it's like, well, let's talk about that because this individual has been successful for 27 years and is known as a sales leader. And that person since was hired, I think 16, this search was probably 16 years ago. And that individual is now a VP of sales in an organization. And when he was in that key senior executive national role, wildly successful, and they found that his greatest skill is closing and leading people. Like those are his two skills that he figured out, but an assessment can't tell you that. Your own assessment of a resume can't tell you that. You've got to get to know people for who they are, what they bring, what they can deliver, what they're passionate about and willing to do. That's why I think the interview process and the interview and screening process is is much more skilled than we give it time and credit for, right? Like that ought to bake into that very cleanly. I need to be able to ask you behavioral and or situational questions and let you sort of unpack how you would apply certain things. Even again, I said behavioral and situational. If you've done it, tell me how you behave. If you haven't, let me give you a situation and tell me what you think you would do. This is how we have to help hiring managers as well to sort of think more broadly. Because to your point, they're going to often just look at the resume because they don't know what to do with themselves during an interview. So they'll just keep kind of looking at that resume and looking back at the person and ask innocuous questions based on that resume. Oh, I see you were at such and such for only, you know, two years. Why did you stay so such a short time? Look, buddy, your qualification says seven years of experience. It does not say seven years of experience with three quarters of that experience being at one company. That's not what your requirement says. So if I have to hear another person tell me, well, they look like a job hopper. They've only been at certain places, you know, two years at a time. Is that a requirement now? Should we add that to the qualification list? Because we've got to make sure that, because I'm not going to waste my time looking for somebody who has 10 years of experience, like you're going to die on a hill to tell me you need And then you want to kind of parse out the 10 years to be within a certain type of 10 years. And you're never going to find the person. It's not going to happen. You're setting yourself up to fail. And if you settle, which is what you will feel like you've done, you've settled in hiring somebody, they're going to know within the first 90 days that you've settled. You'll be sure to let them know. Even if you don't use those words, they're going to pick up on it pretty quickly. And that's why in six months, they'll be gone because that's not the right kind of onboarding perspective you want to give someone. Well, here, we'll show you all this stuff. I don't think you're the right person, but let me just show you how to do everything in case. That vibe is easy to pick up. So John, as we bring talent into the organization, what changes are you seeing the kind of the best companies around employee experience, what have they made? What changes have they made to help show talent that they belong here, that their voice matters here, that they're cared for, and that we want to help you bring your best out in our workplace? What are you seeing? Thank you. That's a really good question. I think obviously there's an inclusion perspective baked into all of that. We've asked for their expertise. Now, how do we let them have a voice to share that expertise and be heard? It's such a catch-22 for so many organizations. We still want to say things like cultural fit. We want you to be all of this and then come and fit into what we do. 
I don't know, is that really going to be the right way to approach it? I think from an inclusion perspective, I try to use the term cultural fabric more than fit much more. How do we have the thread of this new person weave into the tapestry that has been created to this point? I'm not minimizing what we've done to date. It's about adding the next color of thread or type of material into that tapestry to continue moving forward. If I keep trying to tell this this piece of wool to be silk over and over and over again, it isn't going to work. That person will know very quickly they don't belong. So the idea I'd say in most companies right now is we're seeing a push towards communication in a non-formal way. Certainly formality is peppered in, but meaning you're seeing companies kind of use things like cuddles in the morning, doing a, a five or 10 minutes stand up. We're even seeing companies do that remotely, right? So on Zoom, they're, they all stand up as if they were right in the center of the pit with all the cubicles back in the office if they're working remotely, which is kind of fun, right? It just sets a tone and it gives people an opportunity to sort of share what they're doing, what their struggles are, where their successes have been, and they're telling stories. Give people a chance to tell stories. That's a really good inclusive strategy. Just let them tell stories. How did this work? So I know even in our own organization, we utilize our Teams chat, heaven help us, all day long. (laughs) So people are sharing stuff and there's side chats, but then there's there's a full team. Everybody at every level of the organization is in this full team chat. And our staff will say, here's one for you. And they'll give a perspective in terms of a situation they're dealing with or a conversation that they're having. Even if they've already done something, they'll throw it out there to say, what would, he, what would you do? How would you? And everyone's jumping in saying, well, I could probably ask a little bit about this or I would try to be thoughtful. And other people are jumping in saying, oh my goodness, you know, I never would have thought about that. And that it is conversant, but it's done in a way that doesn't require everyone to get on a Zoom, right? Or a video chat. And just be like straight in the camera, you know, okay, so tell me exactly what you think. Because there's something that can be unnerving for some people about that as well. So in this sort of written way, people are adding their two cents, which is really helpful. We're seeing that in more organizations. The other thing I would say is it requires managers to be encouraged and trained in this. We still aren't quite seeing enough companies make a decision to put some support in there. It's still very assumptive that a a manager will know how to do these things. Just telling someone, be inclusive, is probably not enough training or direction if they don't have the right frame of reference, right? It's like telling someone, be healthy. Good luck. I don't think I've been healthy before. I don't, what does be healthy mean? Should I eat right? Are you telling me to run? Maybe you're telling me to get a bike. I know I'm going to join such and such a gym or they don't. No, and they're going to take guesses. And those guesses could not be the best thing. I'm not saying it's all wrong, but it certainly may not be the best choice. So help people, right? Companies need to get better with that. If you want to keep your talent, you've got to train those that are in charge on a day-to-day basis with how to communicate, how to edify and uplift people, how to come up alongside people and provide correction, right? It's not about discipline anymore. Everybody's got to let that go. Stop counting the points for certain things. Get to the place where it's corrective action. 
you want to give them an opportunity to correct their actions, not discipline them for what they've done. Anybody can sit in a corner. You know, we can go to the super nanny technique. You are going to be in timeout for one minute for every year old you are. So you are 52. Go sit in that corner for 52 minutes and think about what you've done. I'm not so sure that that's the right kind of, you know, punitive approach that's going to help your talent feel connected. Instead, here's what you did. We may have a problem with that. Can you see why we may have a problem with that? I mean, obviously you did it. And so maybe you didn't think that we would have a problem with it. Let's talk through that. Oh, you're mad at me. No, I'm actually not mad at you because I may have done something wrong to not let you know we would have a problem with that. Let's talk through it. That's okay. Yeah, I love the point of questions. You know, we believe that talent magnet leaders ask questions and they listen and they take the extra time to learn how to be an active listener and to express care and admiration for people. And to your point, you know, you may find out, well, that's how we did it in my last place of work. Okay, well, here's the reason why we don't. And here's the safety hazards it can create. And here's the quality problems it can generate. Because here's what we've experienced when that happens here, right? Just because you believe that this isn't the way it should be doesn't mean that it's not the way people have done. Right. By engaging and asking questions, you provide a different side of things. And people may say, this is the first time I've actually had this type of interaction with those that I work with and around. So asking good questions, caring, going that extra mile will show people that, you know what, they really, nobody's ever asked me why I do that when this happens. Yes. And, you know, so John, we couldn't agree more with the need for organizations to step up for the tools and the resources that are available today. You know, that the, all of the resources that you can turn to, the platforms, the, you know, our community is open now when it wasn't a year ago, but we've opened up our community for our kind of entry level, our basic fundamental of how to think and be and act like a talent magnet leader, you know, and you can even get a badge when you go through the course. So, There's ways to get your employees involved in things that do not cost a lot, but do take time. But most importantly, it takes your commitment to support them in their growth and go and find tools to do that. Absolutely. And I think that when you can give your team the truthful perspective that you're committed to their growth, to their ability to contribute to the overall, that you're committed to their opportunity, there won't be enough money for someone to offer, generally speaking, for that person to say, I want to give all of this up. I want to give all of this up. I will tell you, you know, even in the times where people have left my organization, which I have to say, thankfully, you know, we have a really good rapport with with everybody, different staff levels who've learned what they can learn here and have moved on to, to something else. It's always very heartfelt in the resignation, always the individual struggles to say, I want to leave because they enjoy what they're doing where they are, but they, they feel like it's the right thing to do next. I'm not mad at them for that. I shouldn't be, right? If they feel like they're ready to take what they've learned here and apply it in a different context, okay. If they want to then come back, okay, right? Learn there and come back. I think there has to be an openness for employers to, as well. But, you know, If you want to be a talent magnet, there could be moments where 
the magnetism is still there, but it's at different distances, right? So someone wanting to come and be a boomerang for you in a year or two years, that's okay, right? That, because the tether is still there. There's still something attractive and appealing about what you've been doing. And that's an investment commitment. Absolutely. Couldn't have, couldn't have said it better myself. John, well, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for, again, your leadership, your support, your advocacy, what all your organization does for the companies it serves and how you treat those inside your current company. It's critical that we do what we profess. Absolutely. It's so, so important. So to our listeners, thank you. Community members, welcome. To those who aren't community members, you're welcome here, and we would love to be on this journey with you. John, again, thank you for joining us for this week's episode. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate you having me. And I look forward to our next conversation with everyone. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Zippel Jr. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.